All right, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 to 8 today, and we'll be finishing this uh, section here this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. There the word of Christ says this. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking that you might, Lord, preserve us in our faith. Lord, that you might seal us with your spirit, and Lord, keep us steadfast and immovable, Lord, until the revealing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that we have the need of endurance, so that having done the will of God, we might, Lord, receive uh, the promised inheritance. And Lord, in this current state, we are on our sojourning. Lord, we are on the pathway. And we pray, Lord, that you might keep us there and keep us from this grave sin of apostasy, Lord, of falling away from you and of crucifying again the Son of God and putting him to open shame. Lord, we recognize that even today, Lord, the rain that comes from your Spirit is falling upon us. And Lord, we pray that it would produce a vegetation that is useful to the Master. Lord, that your work among us might not result in thorns and thistles, but rather in much good fruit, Lord, that is pleasing to you. So, Father, we pray that you bless your word among us today and that your spirit might move in such a way, Lord, as to sanctify us by the truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, we'll conclude this passage today where the apostle is describing this great sin of apostasy. This is the same as what Jesus says in Mark 3, 28 and 29. Yeah, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is also the same as 1 John 5, 16, where the apostle mentions the sin that leads to death. This is the topic at hand, the magnitude and the danger of this great sin. And at this point, we know that the apostle does not believe that this is true of the Hebrew Christians. Though they do have some sin, they have become dull of hearing, yet they have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God. They have not committed the sin that is leading unto death. And he doesn't want them to commit this sin, and that's why he's warning them about it. warning them of the great danger as a means of stirring them up to love and good deeds to stir them up to diligently attend to their salvation. 
And he is describing those who have committed this sin as those who were in some way, though not in a true way, not in a true spiritual way, but in a superficial false way, they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. This is the central thing that he's using to describe their blessings and privileges that they received. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Though they never partook of his grace leading to salvation, they did partake of his benefits and even of his gifts that he bestows in the church. They had a real knowledge and experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. They clearly saw his work among the saints. They had many convincing proofs from the Spirit that God was indeed working among the household of faith. So all this evidence was given to them, an experiential outward knowledge of the power of the Spirit, yet in spite of all of this evidence, they eventually abandon the faith. They fall away. They forsake our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they became apostates from the gospel of Christ. Now this falling away, we concluded, is a thorough, complete repudiation of their former profession of faith in Christ. When they were counted among the brethren at their so-called conversion, they must profess faith in Christ. They believe in their heart, not truly, but they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They acknowledge that Jesus was indeed the Christ sent by God into the world to be the only source of salvation for sin. And this is what they believed temporarily. And this is what they professed temporarily. And upon this profession, they were admitted into the body of Christ, right? Into the fellowship, into the church. And they had their share in the ministry where they partook of the Holy Spirit of God. But now they have fallen away from this profession. Now they no longer believe that Jesus is the Christ, but they have returned to their former manner of life. In the immediate context of the book of Hebrews, these are those who have returned back to Judaism. They've returned back to a Judaism that denies that Jesus is indeed the Christ and is hostile to this statement of faith and hostile to the church of God. As it says in 1 John 2, who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And those there that are denying that Jesus is the Christ were those who formerly were counted among the brethren, but they went out from them. They left them, they forsook them by their profession of in Christ, right? Formerly they confess Christ, they confess Jesus as the Christ, but when they fall away, they deny that Jesus is the Christ. And at the same time of this denial, they must also conclude that all that they saw all that they experienced among the brethren, the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit so evident in the body of Christ, they must now conclude that these powers and gifts were not from God, that they were not coming from the Holy Spirit of God, but rather they came from an evil spirit. They came from the devil. And it is this type of falling away that we're dealing with. From acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ to denying that Jesus is the Christ. From crediting the powers and gifts at work in the church to the Holy Spirit, to crediting the power and gifts that are at work in the church to the devil or to some ill, evil source. When a man does this, he is committing a sin for which there is no forgiveness. 
It is an eternal sin. He is so hardened in his heart, so wicked, that it is clear evidence that God has given him over to a reprobate mind and that it is impossible for him to be renewed to repentance again. So that is where we concluded last time. Today we're going to pick up in verse 6 and we'll finish out the passage today. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. It says, And then they have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Every sin can and has been forgiven, not to all men, but there are in the Bible various sins that have been forgiven. We can go through all of the Ten Commandments and find examples in the Bible of men who sinned in one way or another against one of the Ten Commandments, but who received forgiveness from God on the basis of their repentance of that sin. So, for example, the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me, we know that the Apostle Paul says to the church in Thessalonica that they turned from idols to serve the true and living God. They used to worship false gods, but now they've turned from those false gods and they serve the true and living God and their former idolatry was forgiven. It was washed away, right? They have forgiveness of that sin. We know also in terms of the second commandment that we are not to make images of God, right? We're not to do this type of evil thing that Aaron was participating in the forging of the golden calf and also participated in the worship of that golden calf. And in doing so, he sinned against the second commandment of God. But did Aaron receive forgiveness for that sin? He did. We know as well that Moses, whenever he struck the rock in anger, he brought uh, a type of uh, blasphemy against the name of God, right? He did not uphold the name of God as holy. He did not reverence the name of God the way that he was supposed to do. He took the name of the Lord his God in vain when he did so. But Moses received forgiveness for that sin. In Isaiah 56, 6, it talks about the foreigners, the foreigners who unite themselves to the Lord. And it says there in Isaiah 56, 6, that they keep the Sabbath. Though formerly, in their former state, in their idolatrous state, they did not keep the Sabbath, they broke the Sabbath, but they received forgiveness from that sin. We know as well the prodigal son, when he went out from his father, it was a very dishonorable way that he left his father. And yet when he repented and returned, his father forgave him of that violation of the fifth commandment. David violated the sixth commandment when he sanctioned the murder of Uriah the Hittite. David also violated the seventh commandment when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. But we know that David received forgiveness. Zacchaeus was a lifelong uh, career cheat and a thief who made his living by defrauding and stealing from people. And yet Jesus proclaims that he is a child of Abraham, that salvation has come to this house and that he received forgiveness for those sins. Peter, whenever he was there on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he was there in the courtyard of the high priest, he denied Christ three times. And in doing so, he lied. He bore false witness. And yet Peter received forgiveness for that sin. As well, we know when David committed his sin with Bathsheba, that what ended in adultery began with covetousness. 
He coveted his neighbor's wife and then committed adultery with her. These are all just quick examples of one of the Ten Commandments being broken, being violated in the Bible. Yet in all of these cases, those who sinned against one of these provisions in the Ten Commandments, all of them received forgiveness. All of them were believers who were redeemed. This specific sin was forgiven them. But here in our passage, there is no forgiveness for this sin. There is no example in the Bible of one who committed the sin of apostasy in this way who received forgiveness. And that is because it says here that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. It is impossible for them to be renewed. Though Peter denied Christ, his denial was not a complete repudiation of the person and of the work of Jesus Christ. It was a temporary failing, but it was not a complete falling away, a rejection of all of that and a return to his former manner of life. And this is why Peter was renewed again to repentance. But in the case of Judas Iscariot, he was the son of perdition. His falling away, his denial of Christ was a full final, complete repudiation and rejection of Christ, a complete renouncing and a betrayal of Christ. And though he felt remorse, he was not renewed again to repentance, but rather he went out and hanged himself and fell headlong and he burst open in the middle and all of his intestines came out. Those mentioned in 1 John 2, 19, who went out from us, who prove themselves to be antichrist and liars, who deny that Jesus is the Christ. They did not go out from us, and then at a later time they come back to us. Their going out was a complete going out, a full and final going out, because it is impossible for them to be renewed to repentance again. Now the question is why? What makes this sin so egregious? What makes it such a severe sin? Well, notice the end of verse 6. It says there, Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. This is what makes the sin of such a high and gross nature. They are doing this again. They are again crucifying the Son of God. They are again putting him to open shame. Notice there, they're doing this again. They're doing it anew. After something has happened, and this something is their profession of faith in Christ. It is after all of the benefits that they experience as being a part of the body of Christ. All of the things that were described in verses 4 and 5 after they were enlightened, after they tasted of the heavenly gift, after they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, after they tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, after all of this knowledge and all of this experience of the truth that Jesus is indeed the Christ sent into the world by God and that we can have redemption only through him. After they assented outwardly to this truth, after they made a good profession of faith, after they were counted among the brethren and they had their share in the ministry, they are then going out and crucifying and putting to open shame Christ after all of this. 
There were many Jews and Gentiles who took part in crucifying Jesus and putting him to open shame. This is what happened. Anyone who was involved in what happened at the cross, in the crucifixion of Christ, they had a part in this sin. They put to death the Holy One of God, and they exposed him to open public shame. This manner of death, the shame of the cross, in their eyes was evidence that Jesus was not who he claimed to be, that he was not the Christ, he was not the Son of God, for if he were the Christ, then how could he suffer crucifixion and be exposed to open shame? They did these things, but they did not do it again. They did it at the start, they did it at the first, but none of them who did that did it after their profession of faith in Christ, all except Judas Iscariot. Many of them saw these things, but they never counted themselves there amongst the brethren, there amongst the believers. They were not followers of Christ who did it again, though they did take part in this sin initially. If we look in Matthew 27, Matthew 27 And the point here is that he can't mean that anyone who had a part in crucifying Jesus and putting him to open shame, that they can never be forgiven. Because there were many people who did take part in that, who did receive forgiveness. But here the point is, is it's that they're doing it again. They're doing it after their profession of faith in Christ. And this is what makes it more egregious and more gross so that it is impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. Matthew 27, verse 38. It says, At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is why they desired crucifixion. They didn't desire that Jesus be put to death privately or secretly or that it even be done by a mob. They wanted it done publicly. They wanted him exposed to open shame because his entire ministry had been an open public declaration that he was indeed the son of God. And they wanted something to counterset that, to prove that he isn't who he says he is. He claims to be the son of God, but his being crucified and being put to open shame, in their mind it proves it is the testimony that they need that shows that he is not the son of God and that he is not the Messiah. To show to everyone that he is a blasphemer, that he is a wicked man, he is a worthless man, he claimed to be the son of God, but he's a phony and a fraud because if he were the son of God, then how would we be able to crucify him? If he were the son of God, why would God expose him to open shame in this regard? And all of those who took part in these things, they did that. They crucified him. They exposed him to open shame, but they did it in ignorance, in a kind of ignorance, at least among some of them. If we look at Acts chapter 3, 
Acts chapter 3, here the apostles are charging the people with crucifying the Son of God. But notice there, they say that they did this in ignorance. Acts 3, 11 to 17 says, While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power or piety we made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of his name, it is the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. There, when speaking of their complicity in the murder of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and being put to open shame, he tells them, I know that you acted in ignorance. Right? Not that they were ignorant that it's a, a sin to murder people, or to do those kinds of things. Not that they were ignorant that the Christ was coming. He means that they were ignorant in that they did not understand these things. They didn't understand it. Their eyes had not been opened. They were ignorant according to their own sin, according to their own sin and their own unbelief in who Christ was. Also, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul also, in speaking of his persecution of the church and his blasphemy of Christ also accredits it to his ignorance, to his ignorance. 1 Timothy 1, 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There, the apostle was a persecutor, a blasphemer, a violent aggressor against the church. But he received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He wasn't someone who was a disciple of Christ for three years during his ministry. And then he repudiated that and became a violent aggressor against the church, a blasphemer of Christ and a persecutor of the people of God. He never claimed to be a follower of Christ. He never claimed to be a disciple of Christ when he was doing those things. And that's what he means, means when he says he acted ignorantly and in unbelief. 
And that's the difference between what he was doing and what these people in Hebrews chapter 6 are doing. They're not acting ignorantly. They're not acting in, though it is unbelief, they claim to have faith in Christ. In the case of Acts 3 and 1 Timothy 1, they were all blaspheming Christ, the crowds and the apostle Paul. They were all assenting to his crucifixion. They all agreed that he should be put to open shame. They were in perfect agreement and alliance with those who murdered the Son of God. But they were doing this with ignorance, right? Not meaning that they were guiltless or that they weren't accountable for what they did, but meaning they were blinded to the truth. They were in unbelief. And though they blasphemed Christ, though they took part in crucifying him and exposing him to open shame, this is a very gross and severe sin to crucify the Son of God and put him to open shame. And with the Apostle Paul, you have the added aggravation of taking part in the murder of Stephen, a holy and a righteous man. But did the Apostle Paul commit the unpardonable sin? Did he commit a sin for which there is no forgiveness? Was it impossible for him to be renewed to repentance when he was doing and taking part in those sins? And what about those in Acts chapter 3? Though they took part in crucifying the Son of God, though they agreed with him being put to open shame, was it impossible for them to be renewed to repentance? And the answer is no. Because we know with the Apostle Paul, he did repent of his sin. And what did God do? He was merciful to him. He received mercy so that in his person, God might demonstrate his grace and mercy the foremost because he was such a grave sinner against God. And we know those addressed in Acts chapter 3 and even in Acts chapter 2 that many of them did repent of this sin of crucifying Christ and putting him to open shame. Yet in our passage in Hebrews chapter 6, there... The sin that they're committing is so aggravated. It is of such a high degree that it says there it is impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. And the key here is again. It is the word again. The Apostle Paul and the unbelieving Jews who became believers and who became true Christians, right? This is what was true of them. And this is true, really, of all believers, whether it be them or whether it be us. All of us have a part in crucifying the Son of God and putting him to open shame. Because even we, though we were not present visibly and physically when Jesus was crucified, why was he crucified? For whose sin? It was for our sin. And it is our sin that put him on the tree. And it is our sin who exposed him to open shame. Shame. So we have our part in what took place as well. And so long as a man remains in a state of ignorance and unbelief, he is participating in this sin. But in the case of the Apostle Paul, and in the case of the believing Jews, and in the case of all true believers, they are not doing it again. They did it in their ignorance, but they did not do it after their enlightenment and after their profession of faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul, after he was delivered, after his eyes were opened and he was enlightened and he became a Christian, did he continue persecuting the church of God? Did he continue blaspheming Christ? Was he continuing to be a violent aggressor against those for whom Christ died? 
No, he turned away from those things. He repented of those things. What about those in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3? Those Jews that believed in Christ. Did they continue to blaspheme the holy name of Jesus Christ? Well, of course not. They believed in him, and those who had true faith maintained that profession of faith in Christ. But those in Hebrews chapter 6, they're doing this, they're blaspheming Christ after their enlightenment, after their profession of faith, after they have been counted among the disciples and had their share of the ministry. And really all of this centers upon answering this question, which is why did Jesus die? Why did he die on the cross? Why was he exposed to open shame? One cannot deny the historical fact that Jesus was a true man, that he was born, he lived on this earth, and that he died on the cross. Even unbelieving scholars will attest and affirm that yes, there is plenty of evidence from antiquity to uh, prove that Jesus is a historical figure and that Jesus did die on the cross. So no scholar with any credibility will deny those facts. There's more evidence for the existence of the person of Jesus Christ and his death than there is for the existence of Julius Caesar, any of the other Caesars, Alexander the Great, or any other historical figure in the history of the world. So he was a real person who lived on this earth and who was crucified. He died on the cross. But why did he die on the cross? That is the key. And for the Christian, what do we believe? What do we confess? We confess that Jesus died, but not because he was a wicked man, not because he committed some sin deserving of death. We believe that he was a righteous man, that he was the Holy One of God. He was the sinless Son of God clothed in human flesh, and yes, we confess that he died on the cross. And yes, we confess that he was exposed to open shame. But it was not for any sin that he had committed. But for what reason? For whose sins? It was for our sins. Right? Is this not a chief article of our faith? Right? You can't be a Christian without believing this. This is central to our understanding of the gospel. This is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And this we must believe and this we must confess in order to be saved. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. He died because of me. The righteous one died for the unrighteous. The sinless lamb of God died in the place of sinners, and I am one such sinner. It says in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Or 1 Corinthians 15.3-4, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. There, in a summary statement of the gospel, Christ died for what reason? He died for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. This is our hope, 
This is our rejoicing. This is our salvation. That Christ died for our sins. And when our eyes are opened, right, at our conversion, at, when we are regenerated and our eyes are opened, and then any time afterwards, when we hear this statement that Christ died for our sins, we give hearty approval, agreement, consent to that statement, to this understanding, to this belief. We utter our amen to God, and we rejoice in this great truth. All of our hope and confidence for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life is built upon this truth, that Christ died for our sins. But what about the unbeliever? What does the unbeliever say? What does the unbeliever hold to? The one who rejects the gospel? Well, he must answer this question as well. Why did Jesus die on the cross? But he has a very different conclusion for why he died on the cross. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. The enemies of Christ. Why did he die on the cross in their mind? John chapter 5, verse 18. It says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. Then also John 10, 32 and 33. John 10, 32. There in 31 it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. There they want to kill him for what reason? For blasphemy, they're accusing him of blaspheming against God because he, being a man, makes himself equal with God, which would be blasphemy if he was merely a man. But what is the problem with their deduction? They're not recognizing and seeing that he is the Son of God in human flesh. So is it a sin? Is Jesus committing blasphemy for making himself equal with God the Father? No. He's not. He would be blasphemy if he denied it. And they're the ones who are actually blaspheming his name. And then also Matthew 27, verse 62. 27, verse 62. Now on the next day, the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, uh, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days I'm going to rise again. Therefore, giving orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say that he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. They are, they are calling him a deceiver because he had claimed uh, this ability to rise from the dead. And so they are saying these things about him, but also Matthew 26, I hit the wrong one there, though that one applies as well. Matthew 26, verse 62. Matthew 26, 62. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. 
And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you see? What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? There, the unbelieving, right, whether consciously and audibly, like the Jews or not, or whether one doesn't even consider it or think about it, right, but whatever they are, if a person is not believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, right, then they are denying this. They deny that Jesus died for our sins. And at the very best, an unbeliever would have to say that his death was some kind of a tragic mistake. And at the worst, an unbeliever is saying, like the Jews, that he deserved to be publicly executed and put to open shame because he was a blasphemer. And they are saying that Jesus is a wicked, worthless, a vile, detestable, sinful man. This would be like the Apostle Paul before his conversion. He, what we read earlier from 1 Timothy 1, by his own admission, he says that he was a blasphemer. And the reason he was a blasphemer is because when he was doing all of those things, what was he saying about Jesus Christ? He was not saying that Jesus is the Christ. He was not saying that he is the Son of God. He was in agreement with those who were charging him with blasphemy. And in persecuting the church, he clearly showed what he thought about Jesus Christ. He was denying that Jesus was the Christ. He believed him to be a blasphemer who got what he deserved, that he was a wicked, worthless man who deserved to be crucified on the cross and who was exposed to open shame justly. And his followers, they all deserve the same treatment as well, which is why he was going from house to house, rounding up the Christians and delivering them over to the chief priests and scribes so that they could execute them. But then with the Apostle Paul, God opened his eyes. Then he was enlightened. And when his eyes were opened, he had a change of mind. His view of Christ changed drastically. After his conversion, his opinion, his thoughts, his public statements, his actions, his profession concerning Jesus was very different than what it would have been before. Right Before his conversion, he denied that Jesus is the Christ. Before his conversion, he would have said that Jesus was a wicked and a worthless man, that he was a blasphemer, and that the crucifixion and open shame was the just penalty of God against him because of his own sins. But after his conversion, now he has a different mind. Now he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the righteous Son of God, and that his crucifixion and his being put to open shame was not because of any sin that he had committed, but was for the sins of others, including the sins of the Apostle Paul. Now, how does this then apply to Hebrews chapter 6? Well, we remember 1 John 2, 18 to 24. 1 John 2, 
18 to 24. And I think when we put these together, we see what it is that they're doing in crucifying again the Son of God and putting him to open shame. 1 John 2, 18 to 24. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written because you do not know uh, the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, and the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Here, when he's speaking in verse 19 of those who went out from us, well, if they went out from us, assumes that there was a time when they were among us. They were among us for a period of time. And when they were among the Christian church, then they were professing that Jesus is the Christ. And a part of a profession that Jesus is the Christ is the acknowledgement that he died on the cross for what reason? For our sins. This is what the apostle delivered to them of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. This is the conclusion that they have come to. This is the open statements and declarations that they are making concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ and why it is that he died on the cross. But when they go out from us, when they leave and they reject the church and they reject and renounce these things and they repudiate the gospel of Christ and they reject the person and work of Jesus Christ, well, according to 1 John chapter 2, they are now denying that Jesus is the Christ. When they were among us, they confessed that Jesus is the Christ, but now they have gone out from us and they have a different opinion. Now they deny that Jesus is the Christ. And when they deny that Jesus is the Christ, then they must also come to a new conclusion to explain why he died. When they were among us before, they believed that Jesus is the Christ who died for our sins. But now that they have gone out, they believe that Jesus is not the Christ, and therefore he died not for our sins, but for whose sin? Because of his own sin. Because he was a blasphemer. Because he was a worthless and a wicked man. It's the same as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. When they were among us, when they were there in the church, among the people of God, and they saw the signs and the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit among us. Their conclusion is that these are indeed the people of God, and that these works that we are seeing are indeed the works that come from the Holy Spirit. But when they leave and they renounce all of these things, they have to explain what it is that they experienced and what it is that they witnessed when they were there amongst the people of God. And so what do they conclude? Well, this isn't the result of the work of the Holy Spirit, 
but instead it's a work of the spirit of the devil, right? This is the same as when Jesus performed his miracles. And they said that he healed people and he cast out demons by who? By the prince of demons. He did it by the power of the devil. A clear display of the power of the Holy Spirit made to them. And they cannot deny the reality of what has happened. So they must now come to a conclusion that is so far-fetched and so evil and blasphemous that they actually accredit the work of the Spirit to the work of the devil. And in the same way, those who go out from us, who confess that Jesus is the Christ, who say that he died on the cross for our sins, but now they deny that Jesus is the Christ, and now they must say that he did not die on the cross for our sins, but he died on the cross because he was a blasphemous man. Before they confessed, now they deny. When they renounce the faith, they repudiate the gospel, they reject our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They deny that he is the Christ and that he died as a wicked man. Because if he isn't the Christ, if he isn't the Son of God, then he is a wicked man because he constantly confessed that he was the Son of God. How can you be a good man if you're going around telling people that you're God in human flesh, if you're not indeed God in human flesh? Your whole life is a lie and you are testifying to something that is not true, right? If I go around... Shawnee, Meeker, wherever, and I'm telling everyone that I'm the son of God in human flesh, is that a good thing to do or is that evil? It's a very evil thing, (laughs) very, very evil thing to do. So Jesus cannot be a good man who is merely a man because he is testifying throughout his entire ministry that he is the son of God. And if he is not the son of God, then he is a blasphemer. He is one who has committed a gross and wicked sin. When they deny that Jesus is the Christ, they are at the same time saying that he died as a wicked man. And in this way, they are crucifying again the Son of God and they are putting him to open shame. They are giving their approval and agreement that he deserved to be crucified and he deserved to be put to open shame as a wicked man, just like the ones who were his enemies. And this is all after what? After they have sworn allegiance to him, after they have made a profession that he is the Christ, after they have acknowledged that he died on the cross for their sins, they repudiate all of this, and now they have this different, this change of mind. And this is why they are committing such a gross sin, one that is impossible. A person that is so hard-hearted to do this, so wicked, Their heart is so black and dark. This is why he says it is impossible for them to be renewed to repentance because God has given them over to this depraved, reprobate mind and they will not be saved from this. Okay, then Hebrews 6 verses 7 and 8. He concludes with an illustration. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Here he concludes this discourse with an illustration to show the difference between the true believer and between the false believer or the apostate, the one who falls away. And here he's using this example of land 
and the blessing of rain. In this illustration, the land refers to men, but here specifically, I think it is men who have received the many blessings and exposure to the ministry of the Spirit. The rain is the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, seen and experienced in the preaching of the gospel, especially in the Christian church. And we remember that the Word of God and the ministry of the Spirit are inseparable. They are inseparable. Wherever the gospel of Christ is faithfully proclaimed, there the Spirit of Christ is at work. And this is the one who has received the blessing from the Lord. So for example, in Isaiah 55, in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, there he describes the word of God as rain that falls on the land. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding, succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Here in Isaiah, the focus is on the means that is used by the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in men, which is the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 6, the focus is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who brings this about there in the body of Christ. And when God's Spirit is, work, is at work among men, right, especially in the church of Jesus Christ, where God's Word is to be central to everything that we do, right? Our faith is built upon the Word of Christ. We are people of the book. We hold the Word of Christ in high regard. And when that is happening in the church, the Spirit is at work among us. We are the land, and whenever the word of Christ is faithfully proclaimed, that land is having rain fall from heaven upon it, from the Spirit of Christ. And when God sends rain upon the land, what does God expect? What should be found among those who receive such favor and blessing from the Lord. Well, he says, vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled. The farmer works the land. He tills the land, right? He plants the seed. He waits for the rain to fall in the expectation that he will receive vegetation that is useful, right? A harvest of crops, good fruit that is going to be a benefit to himself and to his family, and so when God grants to a people such blessings from the Spirit, the tillage of the ground, the planting of the seed, the rain that falls often upon it, what does God expect among such people? He expects to find good fruit. He expects to find vegetation that is useful. Faith and repentance, love in the body of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, all of the virtues of godliness, these are the things that should be evident, that should be seen in the people of God whenever the rain is falling upon them often. It says in Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The whole point of our salvation is that we may bear fruit for God. 
when good fruit to God is found. When the rain falls on the people and produces good spiritual fruit, then those people here, according to verse 7, receive a blessing from the Lord. It is evidence of God's work of salvation and that God will continue to bless that work by granting more and more and more rain from the Spirit that will yield a greater increase in harvest of good fruit and ultimately all of that blessing upon those people will, res- will result in their eternal salvation, their complete perfect salvation, their glorification in their being made like Christ. They will receive this ultimate blessing from the Lord. Second Peter chapter 1 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 11, speak of this fruit that should be evident among us. First, 2 Peter 1, 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. There, these things are to be in us, but also to be increasing in us. And that happens as the rain falls upon the ground. As we are exposed to more and more of the word of God, more and more of the ministry of the spirit among us, then these virtues will be increasing in us. And when God comes among his people, and we know from Revelation chapter one to three, who is always among his churches? Who is the one who walks among the churches always looking with his eyes that are a flame of fire? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is among us this morning, walking among us, invisibly, spiritually, and inspecting us. And what does he expect to find when the good word of God falls here upon the people? Vegetation that is useful, good fruit that is profitable for the sake of the one that it is tilled. But there is also a great danger as well. It is a danger for the ground to receive rain that often falls on it. And if that ground produces thorns and thistles, then that ground proves, that person proves, that he is worthless, that he is accursed, and he deserves to be burned. Right? It is one thing for a land to be desolate that receives no rainfall. Right? Who expects to go to the middle of the Sahara Desert and find lush fields of wheat and corn and other crops that are growing out there, orchards of olive trees or apple trees. Is anyone going to find that in the Sahara Desert? No, it's an arid climate. They receive no rainfall there. It's just sand, right? Sand and snakes probably trying to bite you. And this is how it is in those areas where there is little to no gospel witness. Who expects to find true believers in places where there's no preaching of the gospel? 
Who expects to find true faith and repentance and the virtues of godliness and the fruits of the Spirit among a people who are in darkness, who have no access to the Word of God, no access to the gospel? Do missionaries ever go into foreign lands, into pagan lands, and find people there in their right mind worshiping the true God, praising Jesus Christ? What do they find them doing? running around, butchering each other, acting like a bunch of savages, worshiping rocks and trees and stars, the moon, the sun, worshiping all manner of idols. Who expects to go there and find good fruit? No one. But when that missionary comes, what is he bringing with him? He's bringing the word of God. And now the rain is beginning to fall on the desert place, on that area that was a wasteland. And when the rain begins to fall, even in a desert place, what will begin to happen? there will be life. Life will begin to spring up. There will be vegetation. Things will begin to grow. And here in Hebrews chapter 6, we're not talking about pagans and idolaters. We're not talking about people who have no exposure to the gospel, to the word of God, or to the work of the spirits. These are not men who have not received any rain. These are not men who have no access to the word of God who have no exposure or experience to the ministry of the Spirit. These are men like Judas Iscariot. Did the rain fall upon Judas? For three years, the rain fell upon him every single day. It fell upon him often. And yet, in spite of all of his privileges, in spite of all of those blessings, and in spite of all of those advantages, what did it produce in Judas Iscariot, thorns and thistles. And what will happen to such a person? He will be cursed by God and he will be burned with unquenchable fire. What more can God do for a man than to give him everything necessary for salvation? In terms of the means of salvation, everything has been graciously provided for these people, yet they still fail to yield any good fruit to the Lord. Instead of faith, there is apostasy. Instead of repentance from dead works, there's indulgence in sin. Instead of love for the brethren, there is a forsaking of the assembly. Instead of love for Christ, they blaspheme his holy name. They trample underfoot his precious blood. Instead of yielding to the Spirit, they are stiff-necked and they always resist the Holy Spirit of God. And when a person professes faith in Christ, but then later he begins to produce these kinds of thorns and thistles, whatever may seem to have been there initially at his conversion is gone, and in its place rise up thorns and thistles like this. It shows that that man is under the curse of God. He is under the curse, and he is ready to be burned up. And the last state of that man is worse for him than the first. He is worse off now than he was before. It'd be better for him to have never known the way of righteousness than to know it, to assent to it, to walk in that way briefly, and then to turn away and reject the holy commandment of God. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 2, I meant. Second Peter 2, 17 to 22. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. 
for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from those who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Why would it be better for them to have never known? Why is the last state worse than the first? Right? If the last state is the same as the first, why is it worse? Because they had this temporary reformation. They had this temporary ascent, an understanding, an enlightenment to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They momentarily escaped these defilements of the world. It is that escape, that momentary escape, that makes the last state worse than the first. It is the sow that has been cleaned that goes back to wallowing in the mire that is in a worse state than the one who was never cleaned to begin with. Because the one, spiritually speaking, who has never been cleaned, there's still hope for salvation for that person. But the one who has been temporarily cleaned and then goes back to their former manner of life, what is left for that person? Well, what does he say there? He says that the black darkness has been reserved for such persons. This is the same as chapter 6. It is impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. Repentance is possible, at least in terms of our perception and what can happen with this person. But after they go back to it, they have committed this sin that is of such an egregious nature that it is impossible for them to be renewed. And all there is is the expectation of divine judgment upon us. Now, in conclusion here, two short considerations. First, we must remember this passage is given to put the fear of God into us. That is why it is given to us. These are called the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And they're warning us about the danger of sin, especially the sin of falling away, of not persevering, of not holding fast to our profession firm until the very end. That is why he's given this to them. It is to put the fear of God in them and to put the fear in God in us. And specifically here, to shake off their sluggishness so that they would diligently attend to their salvation and they wouldn't just be floating through the Christian life. And we have the same need as well. So long as we have the flesh, and as last I heard, every one of you and me included, we all still have the flesh. And the flesh makes us sluggish. The flesh weighs us down, right? The flesh drags us down in this way. There is need then for us always to shake off this dullness, this sluggishness that keeps us from attending to our salvation and taking it as seriously as we should take it. And this passage should rouse us in such a way that we diligently press on, shake off these things and press on. But secondly, lest we be overcome with excessive discouragement and sorrow, we must always remember that in this life, the child of God, even the true believer who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, 
right? The one who has become a true partaker of the Holy Spirit, who can never lose his salvation. That one, and this is true of all of us, as long as we are in this life, we will always have a mixture of good fruit, but also thorns and thistles. This is the way it is in the Christian life. This is the case in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. They are dull of hearing. That's what brought him to this whole discourse. He says, though he wants to move on to greater things, he's not able to do it because they have become dull of hearing. Is the virtue, it's not a virtue, is the attribute of dull of hearing. Is this a Christian virtue or is this a vice? Is this good fruit or is this a thorn and a thistle that is being produced in their life? It's not good fruit to be dull of hearing. This is not a virtue of the Christian life. This is coming from the flesh. It's coming from sin, indwelling sin. That is where it comes. But even though they have this sin, even though there is this thorn and this thistle, is that all that is true of them? Do they not have also good fruit as well? Well, notice Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work. In the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered, and in still ministering to the saints. They also have good fruit. Love for God. Is that a virtue or a vice? Well, that's a virtue. That's good fruit. What about ministering to the saints? That is good fruit to God. Love of God and love of neighbor. These are the two chief virtues of the Christian life, and they're doing that. And it's not, he's not saying that you used to do that. They're still doing that, right? They're still ministering to the saints. Is that vegetation that is useful to the master? Absolutely it is. That's good fruit. And so when Christ, who is the great vine dresser, when he comes to his people, when he inspects the ground that has received his many blessings and finds useful vegetation, when he finds good fruit, he will never curse and he will never burn that land, but he will work it, he will cultivate it, he will prune it, he will bless it, he will care for it in such a way that it will produce more and more good fruit, but he will never forsake that land, he will never reject it, he will never walk away from it from it, even if it produces the smallest measure of good fruit, right? And we might be tempted to say, well, I have faith, but I have a very weak faith, right? I have little faith. Well, didn't Jesus's disciple have little faith? Didn't he often say to them, oh, you of little faith? But did he cast them aside? Did he curse them and burn them with fire? No, he continued to minister to them, to work among them, to care for them, and increase their faith so that their little faith became greater and they had a greater measure of faith. Or we might be tempted to say that I have but little godliness. But you have some. Yes, none of us are what we want to be because who among us as a true believer, don't we all want to be perfect? Don't we want to be completely done away with sin? This is what all of us desire is to live perfectly and to perfectly obey God. And by God's grace, we're not what we used to be. And by God's grace, we will be even greater than what we are today. And it is the work of Christ among us. I am confident that he who began the good work will bring it to completion. Christ is the one who tends to his garden. He is the one who cares for his own flock. 
And he does not discard the weak, the sick, those who are with young, but he gives special care and attention to those types of persons in order to build them up and to secure them and to keep them from falling away. So let us then press on to maturity. Let us with diligence tend to our own salvation, but let us also rejoice and take comfort knowing that the bruised reed he will not break and the dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Even if there is the faintest glimmer of a spark, even the lightly burning ember, Christ will not quench it. He will fan it and cause it to burn hotter and brighter and make it come into a flame. And this is the way that he is with us. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He cares for his own. And if we see good fruit to God within us, then we should rejoice and thank God for that work that is within us and know that God will continue to bless that work and he will continue to cause us to grow more and more and more. And then this is the way that we should exercise love and compassion toward one another because we all have our failings in many ways in which among us can say that we are without sin. None among us. So we have to exercise care, patience, tenderness toward one another as we all press on into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, thanking you that you are such a gracious and kind master. Lord, that you are one who tends to your garden and that, Lord, you know how to care for your own. Lord, everything that is needed in order for us to be fruitful, uh, fruit-bearing Christians, Lord, you have so graciously provided for us. You have given us your word. Lord, you have given us your Holy Spirit. You have placed us here within the body of Christ. Lord, you give us access to you in prayer. Lord, we have Bibles before us that we can take home, that we can read. Lord, we have all of these blessings that have been given to us by you. Lord, the rain is falling upon us often. And so there is no excuse, Lord, for us to be unfruitful Christians, Lord, to be a contradiction. For how can anyone who has the Spirit of God within them fail to bear any fruit? And so, Lord, we pray that your blessings, these privileges that you've granted to us, Lord, that they would indeed produce vegetation that is useful to the Master. And that, Lord, as you inspect us, that you would, Lord, cause those graces and those virtues that are within us. Lord, cause our faith, Lord, to increase. Cause our godliness to increase. Lord, we pray that you do so. But as well, we pray that whatever is there that is contrary to your will, Lord, that is of our flesh, that are thorns and thistles or dead works, we pray that, Lord, you would sanctify us from those things and that you would prune us and remove those things so that we might bear more good fruit. Lord, we are grateful that you are the one who has begun our salvation and you are the one who will bring it to completion. And Father, we thank you that you are such a gracious and patient, long-suffering with your people. Lord, knowing that we all stumble in many ways and we still, Lord, are so sluggish, Lord, failing to be diligent in the things that we ought to do. Lord, forgive us of such sin, Lord, of such ingratitude, to Christ and what he has done for us. 
But we pray that you continue to work within us. And Lord, you would continue to strengthen us. Lord, and to cause us to walk in your ways. Father, we ask that you preserve our faith. Lord, knowing that if our salvation was ever, whether at the beginning or at the end or anywhere in between, if it was dependent upon our own strength and our own ability to keep ourselves, Lord, all of us would fall away. Lord, all of us would fall into apostasy. Lord, we know that it is only your grace and your strength that keeps any of us from falling from the faith. And so, Father, we pray that that grace and strength that we so desperately need, you would supply and that you would keep us from this sin. Lord, may we never be those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. Lord, may we never be those who crucify him again and put him to open shame and who trample under our feet the blood of Christ. But rather, may we be those who openly profess his name. Lord, who look to his death. Lord, as the very source of our salvation. Lord, knowing that he died not for his sins, but for ours. And Lord, may we see his blood as precious, the most precious thing in the world to us, so that we never deny him or turn away from our faith. Lord, keep us and preserve us. Lord, for your own glory, for our good, for the goods of our family, Lord, for the good of this church. And Lord, build us up. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.